This is a very strong disclaimer for violence. We're talking about werewolves, so there's a lot of death. Please check out mythpodcast.com for more info. This week on Myths and Legends, we're talking all about werewolves. And you'll see that you can just go ahead and follow the sound of music into the woods, to that fun little candle dance party, and take the fancy new wolf belt that that creepy stranger offers you. What harm could there be except to your soul, friends, family, strangers, and yourself? This is Myths and Legends, episode 87, The Lost. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by the podcast, Heaven's Gate. Maybe you remember Heaven's Gate from the shocking footage. 39 bodies all in uniforms, purple shrouds, and black Nikes. People who believed they'd be taken to heaven in a UFO. Or maybe you remember Heaven's Gate as the biggest mass suicide in American history. But did you know there's a lot more to the story? Glenn Washington's new podcast, Heaven's Gate, talks with people who lost loved ones and those who still believe to unravel the cult's mysteries. Whatever you think you know, prepare to be surprised. Subscribe to Heaven's Gate, the podcast, wherever you listen, like Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. This time, it's our annual Halloween episode, where, for one week out of the year, we look at the dark side of folklore. Our first one was on doppelgangers, the supposedly true stories of our grim and ghostly doubles that travel the world and foretell our doom. Then, last year, it was Urban Legends, the modern version of folklore, where our fears about modern life are transformed like a 21st century grim fairy tale. And this year, we're talking about werewolves. I'm going to be honest with you. I almost did a werewolf episode for my first Halloween show, but I just couldn't stomach it. Where the last two Halloween stories have been more creepy than gory, this one is full-on gore in a way that only stories from the Middle Ages can present. The stories today aren't like some monsters in the dark forest, but they're the ones that could be sitting right next to you. It could be your friend, your spouse, or simply a stranger who has a monster lurking inside. Mr. Dice, a brewer, was walking along the road to town when he ran into Mr. Stubb, hobbling along on his staff. Stubb had business in town, and the pair continued on together, chatting. Somewhere mid-sentence, Tice realized awkwardly that he was talking to himself, and so he turned. Stubb had stopped cold a few paces back and stood staring out across the field beyond the fence. His back stiffened as he followed his companion's gaze. He sighed. Another one. Out in the field, birds were gathering loudly. Crows and ravens fought each other as the sky turned black, if only in one condensed area. Neither man spoke, and instead, both quickly left the road. They knew what it was. Tice nearly vomited, as together they pushed aside the wheat to reveal a young woman and her daughter. Stubb could only stare with a look that straddled the line between fascination and horror. Both victims were mangled beyond recognition. Yet, the two men knew instantly who they were. Everyone had been combing the fields and forests for them, and the others. For months now, there had been attacks like this on the road, and in the forests. It had started with livestock. Sheep, goats, cows, they were all found with their throats ripped out. They were torn up, with their entrails strewn about, in such an excessive way 
that it didn't indicate hunger or necessity. Whatever animal it was, it was big, and it wasn't long before the first child disappeared on the road. Then the next one. There had been four or five victims that they knew of, and yet one survivor had come forward since the attacks began, his story seemingly so sensational that no one really believed him. He claimed that the attacker was an animal the likes of which they had never seen. He said the monster was a werewolf. For 25 years, the attacks continued. For decades, people were found in the forest, or the streets, or on the road, half-eaten, their throats torn out. Countless people disappeared from Bedburg and the surrounding towns. Some deaths were met with tears, others with resignation, a bitter acceptance that this was their life now. Some people tried to tell themselves that their children just ran away, that they had found a new home and married a princess, like in the old stories. But no matter what the parents told themselves, they knew there was something wrong with Bedburg. Over the town lay a blanket of fear, each citizen living with the thought that there was a monster lurking on the edges of your town, or on the road at night, or in the case of one group of children, one that sprung on them in broad daylight when they were bathing. One time, two men and one woman were walking along the road. A voice from the forest called for help, and one of the men obliged. When he didn't return, another went. A few days later, both men were found bludgeoned to death. The woman was never heard from again. Countless tragedies had struck their town, and no one really knew what to do. Children were no longer allowed to play outside. Those who had to travel rarely did so unarmed, and even then, sometimes didn't return. There was also no guarantee of a quick death. If you were unfortunate enough to encounter the rogue monster, victims have been found half-eaten, left to feel the excruciating pain of exposed tissues and torn muscles, dead, but only after having dragged themselves for nearly a half mile. And, perhaps most disgusting of all, there was evidence that some of the victims had also been violated. No one knew if it had happened before or after death. That was it. The thing had terrorized them for too long. No one knew what to do until, on the edge of town, in broad daylight, the monster strayed too far. A young girl frolicked outside, playing in the warm rays of the sun in her front yard when, suddenly, a flash of fur appeared and then disappeared, grabbing the young girl by the neck and dragging her into the nearby forest. This was finally too far. This was their home. They understood the road and the forest. After all, it was early modern Europe and there were monsters everywhere. But their home? The men and women of the village grabbed their guns and scythes and clubs and followed the screaming girl into the woods. When the thing realized it was being followed, it dropped the girl and ran deeper into the woods. Some townspeople stopped to comfort the child and get her to safety, while most continued after the creature. If they could get it now, it could all be over, and they would take back their town. They advanced into the woods, gaining ground until they were almost upon the monster, its hairy silhouette huffing and heaving through the forest, until they rounded a corner, and it was gone. They stopped and looked in all directions, confused. Those in front of the group started cursing themselves for letting it go. Their salvation had been so close. That was when they heard someone take a deep breath. There, 
on the ground lay Stubb. The old farmer was sweaty and breathing heavily, not 10 feet away from where the wolf had disappeared. The miller, the leader of the group, pushed aside a low-hanging branch and revealed him sprawled out on some tall grass. Stubb winced before a wave of relief washed over him. It was just a man pointing a gun at his face. Stubb laughed and glanced around nervously. The wolf, he said. The wolf had been after him. The one that everyone was going on about? It was just here. He had dove undercover and the monster continued on, like... the other way. The miller lowered his gun. It wasn't the wolf. It was just Mr. Stubb. The old farmer could never have done it. The guy had to be in his mid-fifties by now. And he was missing a hand. Besides, the unlucky fellow had nearly died a couple of times. From the wolf's attacks. More than anyone else, actually. Most people who saw the wolf died. Except Stubb. Hmm. That's when the miller took a closer look at Stubb's face. And saw the deep, bloody scratches he was trying to hide with his collar. And the blood that he had failed to wipe away from his mouth, on the cuff of his shirt. Stubb was studying the miller's face in the corner of his eye as the miller was reading his. Both men made the realization at the same time, eyes widening at the thought. His secret was out. Stubb had been a survivor of multiple wolf attacks, not because the sweaty old guy looked unappetizing, which he definitely did, but because he was the wolf. No one ever suspected him, because he was just old Mr. Stubb, the weird guy who lived on the edge of town with his young wife. How could he have killed dozens of innocent people? He appeared so non-threatening that he hid in plain sight. The miller shuddered. Stubb had even walked through town, visiting the families of the wolf's victims, to offer his condolences. The man was a complete psychopath. Gun to his head, Stubb was walked out of the forest. Stubb, of course, denied the charges, but his appearance at the crime scene, combined with anyone's report that he had turned back into a human from a wolf, was proof enough. He was sentenced to be executed. Stubb, who had apparently been given a wolf fur belt by Satan himself when he was 12, confessed to the murders and even told them some stuff they didn't want to know. Stubb had kept to himself on the edge of town, having few friends and no visitors. His official body count, according to his confession, was 14 children and two pregnant women. Worse, his young wife, who just appeared one day, was his daughter. Over the years, he had had two children with her, a daughter and a son. They stormed Stubb's house and found his daughter wife and non-wife daughter, but no son. It said that his hunger was so strong that even his own family wasn't safe. Allegedly, Stubb had taken his son out in the forest one afternoon for some father-son time and had come out alone that evening. His daughter wife and daughter confessed to helping Stubb with his murders and partaking in the meals he brought home. They were given relatively quick deaths for their roles. They were flayed and strangled. If that sounds rough, well, it was nothing compared to what Stubb had coming. They bound Stubb to a wheel, where he was pinched with red-hot pincers that tore flesh from his body, legs, and arms in dozens of places. Then, his limbs were broken with the blunt end of an axe, and finally, he was beheaded. Given that the beheading was done by the very people who hated him, using wood-cutting axes that they just had lying around, I can't imagine it was super fast, clean, or professional. No one really knows for sure what happened with Peter Stubb, though the murders and terror died with him, and the wolf was never seen again. Now, like the vampire stories from last year, it's never as simple as that. Nearly all of what we know about Peter Stubb and his alleged crimes comes from a pamphlet 
that was printed in Britain two years after his death, detailing the salacious crimes of the madman. That, that's it. A pamphlet. It was allegedly translated from the German one, but none of those survived. Things get more complicated when we learn that Stubb was a convert to Protestantism in the time when there was a lot of bloodshed and fighting over that issue in Europe. There was a war going on about the time that he was said to have committed the crimes, which could have been the reason for a number of the deaths. And a year before his trial, the Catholic Lord of Bedburg was victorious in the war and settled down to cementing his faith in the region. Stubb could have been a one-handed middle-aged man who transformed into a one-handed middle-aged wolf who outwitted and murdered men, women, and children for over 25 years. Or his trial could have been a political act to scare Protestants into submission, heaping on all sorts of horrifying details to make an example of this man who lived a quiet life on the edge of town and who just so happened to have converted to Protestantism. We're going to take a deep dive into lycanthropy lore, but that will be right after this. All right, now back to the show. Let's take a moment and talk about werewolves, the vampire's less sexy cousin. While the vampires are seductive, scandalously swapping bodily fluids, werewolves are wild and monstrous in a different, completely messed up way. I'm going to be honest with you. It kind of seems like the excuse of, I turned into a wolf and couldn't help it, is just that. An excuse to do some really heinous things. Unlike popular movies, and a lot like the vampires we covered last year, there's no one way to become a werewolf. But instead, you can become a werewolf through sorcery, by thinking that glass of human blood looks oh so refreshing, thinking bad thoughts, eating another person, thinking about eating another person, because the devil gave you a fancy belt, and you saw no problem with trying on the devil's fancy belt. Because one of your family members was a werewolf at some point, drinking rainwater out of a wolf's footprint, sleeping outside on a summer night with the full moon shining on your face on a Wednesday or Friday, being excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, doing mushrooms and putting on a wolf cloak before battle, because you went hunting with your father who was also your uncle and thought those wolf cloaks that you stole looked nice, or because you tried to feed a human to Zeus. In doing research for this episode, I came across quite the range of werewolf stories. There were stories that told of lands in Eastern Europe, where werewolves have lived in the forest for generations, keeping to themselves unless someone ventured out into the forest and tried to set up a house, in which case the werewolves will break in, eat you and your family, and drink all your beer. Yes, that's explicitly stated. One such werewolf had become a servant of a local nobleman, and when asked about his weekend plans, he casually mentioned transforming into a human-wolf hybrid and killing anything slower than himself. The wife of the nobleman laughed it off. But he turned to her, ignoring his station, and with a completely straight face, explained that he was serious. She kept laughing. How could that be? If he was serious, he should show her. Side note, if someone is dead serious that they're a werewolf, don't ask them that question. The servant grinned, and he told her to look out across the moors. And he left. Even though it wasn't visible to the people in the room, within seconds, the quiet room filled with sounds of tearing and snarling from below. Then, a massive wolf shot off across the field outside the castle, heading straight for the tree line, howling as he ran. The castle was, of course, prepared for wolves and had their hounds ready when the strange creature arrived on the scene. The baying of the dogs interrupted the wolf's howling. And even though the wolf ran, the trained hounds were faster. They were almost out of sight when the noblewoman saw the hounds catch the wolf and tear into its face. 
She laughed and asked where the servant was. No one knew, and she shook her head. Of course, he had seen one of those massive wolves wander near the castle, and he lied to get a night off. He would be worse than fired if he had the nerve to return. It was two days until she caught sight of him outside. He saw her, but pretended he didn't. She knew it was out of shame, and though it was unbecoming of her to stoop down to address a servant as such, she confronted him about the stunt. He wasn't contrite, but he also wouldn't turn to face her. When she demanded he turn around, she saw why. His left eye had been torn out, and half his face had been mangled. It was as if he had been attacked while running from hounds. I also came across stories of people being ruled over by werewolves. One was named Albertus Pericofsius. He pressed his people too hard and basically stole cattle from them. One time, upon returning from a trip, he found that his cattle had all died, and he yelled out to God, tearing his shirt and blaspheming, saying that if God wanted to destroy his you know, ill-gotten livelihood, then he should just take his life too. Go on, God, take your best shot. Now, if you're a parable waiting to happen, like an unjust ruler getting his comeuppance, don't challenge God to double down on the punishment. Because God, God will do it. The ruler winced and shouted out in pain as he began sprouting hair. His teeth grew and ripped through his gums, and his clothes shredded as he transformed into the wolf he always was on the inside. Consumed by hunger, he ran to the dead cattle and began eating them. Hours later, after he had consumed his fill of rotten flesh, he transformed back into a human. Not only was he now naked and stuffed and covered in decaying cow bits, but his wife, who had been watching from the house the whole time, died of fright. Another ruler was also known for pressing his subjects too hard. He was blinded just how cartoonishly evil he was in dragging off an elderly widow and her granddaughter's last cow. I can picture God rolling his eyes and hitting the man with some werewolfery, which is an actual word. Well, almost. This guy was mostly transformed into a wolf. You see, he was like a normal big wolf, like a dire wolf, all except for his head. For the rest of his life, he walked around with a body of just kind of like a big dog, but the head and sense of a human. Not only did he have all the drives and desires of a wolf, but he was aware of it too. Around the time of Peter Stubb, there were other stories. In France, it was kind of a really hot time for werewolf trials. And the details grow dark, and also really weird. One starts with a guy losing some sheep. He was out searching for his lost flock in the middle of the night. Remember, for people of the ancient medieval times, livestock meant livelihood. And so, to lose the whole flock was not a cost most people could deal with. Thus, Pierre as he was known, broke several rules of myths and legends in a single night. Three riders, their faces covered and clad completely in black, claimed that their master knew where the sheep had gone. If Pierre swore instant and irrevocable loyalty to him, then he would find his sheep tonight. After asking precisely zero questions, Pierre swore that he would be loyal to their master, still not knowing who their master was. The strange beings rode off, and moments later, Pierre spotted the sheep. The next night, on his way home, Pierre turned a corner and immediately heard the hooves, hot on his trail. It was one of the men wearing black again, riding up to him with a message. Oh, you know that master you swore loyalty to last night? He's the devil, and we gotcha. Pierre shrugged with a, All you got me looks like I'm a devil worshipper now, look, and followed the creepy rider into a clearing where people were dancing with candles. Noted that it was odd that he didn't notice the gathering earlier, what with it being dark and these people were obviously having a candle party not that far away. There, he kissed the weird rider's hand, renounced Christianity, and swore allegiance to Satan. Before you think it, no, 
I'm not embellishing this at all. And if it seems very on the nose, well, it is. This is all from Pierre's testimony and his trial. Werewolf trials were a subset of witch trials, where the accused were charged with being werewolves, either with potential political motivations, as was a possibility in the case of Peter Stubb, or, as was the case in some Eastern European countries, that people practiced religions different than the prevailing Christian religion at the time. And the authorities were either unwilling or unable to understand the difference between a non-Christian religion and witchcraft. So when property was damaged or livestock or people killed, they were the first suspects. I found some of the more interesting stories for today, but werewolf stories basically boil down to a bunch of deaths happening, someone getting arrested, that person actually being the perpetrator, and a bunch of brutally violent descriptions before the person is convicted of lycanthropy and is usually slowly and sadistically executed. There aren't really easy answers as to what's going on with really any of these trials, except to say that people probably didn't turn into wolves. It's also a possibility, in Pierre's particular instance, that confessing to being a werewolf and the aw shucks the devil made me do it defense might have fallen under a different court's jurisdiction and things might have gone better than just straight out saying you're an incredibly disturbed serial killer who has murdered dozens of women and children and maybe eaten parts of them too. And that's what Pierre allegedly did. Over the course of the next few years, little children began disappearing. Others were found mangled and those who survived spoke of a creature that was the size of a man with hair like a wolf. According to Pierre, he became a regular at the devil-worshipping candle dance parties. And the creepy guy, named Mitchell, gave him an ointment for when he really wanted to cut loose. When he rubbed it on his body, hair popped out. His hands and feet turned to paws, and he wasn't sure about his face. He didn't have time to look into a mirror. Pierre informed the court, after he was arrested, that it took even the most seasoned werewolves a few days to recover from the transformation. Not him, though. He'd be back to 100% in a couple of hours. He also could transform with his clothes, so... That's why he never ended up naked, like most werewolves. Apparently, he thought his murder trial was an appropriate time to brag about that. For all the work that went into his defense, the court didn't buy it. And Pierre hung for his crimes. I like to avoid talking about symbolism and meaning when it comes to folklore. But it seems to be so obvious here that we can't not talk about it. The wolf is representative of the fear of the forest, of being consumed by the unknown. It's the rapacious rulers who squeeze their subjects too hard. It's the feral and relentless Viking fury. It's the monstrous person we don't understand. Wolves are often unfairly maligned in folklore and as the monsters that lurk in the darkness of the forest, the danger that threatens to devour us. And the werewolf is that too, but one step inward. The werewolf is the monster inside us. If the story of Stubb is true, Putting on a wolf skin didn't make him into a wolf. It brought out what was already inside of him. It gave him permission to indulge in any desire, no matter how grotesque and horrific. The vampires represented a fear of the other. The doppelgangers, ominous fate. Urban legends, our own undying tendency towards superstition. This year's episode, though admittedly the least creepy, might be the most terrifying to me because all instances in it were people. And there are still wolves among us. But... They don't bother to wear skins anymore. They aren't animals, but they could be our friends, co-workers, sometimes even family. I should say, too, that I know Peter Stubb has like six different ways to say his name. It's also Stubb, Stump, and Stumpf. Next time, it doesn't really get any cheerier. It's the end of a mythology, the doom of the gods, Ragnarok. 
is coming to the world of Norse mythology, and everything Odin has been working to prevent will come to pass. And he and Fenrir, Thor and the World Serpent, and the Aesir and the Giants will finally meet in one epic, chaotic battle while the world burns around them. There's an extended creature this week. This time, we're talking about La Llorona from Mexico and Central America. The brothers had stopped to rest. They had gotten in a fight with Mom. Again. They grabbed the packs, that they always had at the ready, and left before sundown. Now, as they sat on the rocks by the river, they didn't know what else to do. They had no money, no food, and no place to go, and they were now reconsidering in the darkness, the rash act that had seemed like such a good idea in the evening light. It was the younger brother that relented first, suggesting that they go back home. This wasn't the way to solve their problems. The elder brother shook his head and tossed a rock into the river. Then, the elder brother froze and slowly turned around to see nothing. He had heard it, though, unmistakably footsteps on the dirt behind him in the dark. Then, the weeping. It grew louder and louder as the elder brother became paler and paler. His whole body froze, locked in place. Tears began to form in his eyes, and he nodded. The younger brother, who didn't see or hear anything, was confused. The elder brother began shaking then nodded one final time before he clambered to his feet. He left his bag, his brother, everything, and took off in a run in the direction of his home. The younger brother, left on the riverbank, sat startled and confused. He had no idea what just happened, but he guessed his brother had seen reason. That was when he looked down at the bank. That was odd. In the shadows, he saw an indent from where his brother had been sitting, and his own footsteps as he ran back home, those weren't the only ones. There was another pair of footsteps coming from the river, ones that stopped right behind where the elder brother had been sitting. The younger brother gasped. La Llorona, the crying woman. He stumbled backwards, away from the footsteps that hadn't moved, and raced off in the direction that his brother had gone. Maria laughed. It was her wedding day. Having grown up poor in a humble village, she swore to herself that, when the time came, her parents' life would not be her life. She was naturally beautiful, and she knew that marriage was the only way out of this life of hers. Of course, so many of the boys in the village loved her. Pretty much all of them, actually. But as they all grew older, the boys started looking more and more like their fathers. And it was just another reminder that she couldn't marry any of them. No matter how great they were, there were men that rode through town, and she had nearly been duped by a few travelers who pretended to be powerful men, ones that were interested in her, but not marriage. Maria began to despair until he rode through town. He was a ranchero from far away, the son of a rich rancher who stood to inherit millions. Not only was he rich and handsome, but he had a life about him, a vitality. If he owned a horse that grew tame, he would go lasso another horse from the plains. It wasn't manly to ride a horse if it wasn't half wild. He would sing, 
play guitar, and recite the most beautiful poetry. Maria knew that he was the man for her. So that's why she took one look at him and rolled her eyes and walked away. The man cocked his head. That was new. He was a good-looking rich guy who recited poetry and could play the guitar. Pretty much nobody walked away from him. He asked who she was and learned her name and where she lived. He went to her house and pulled out the guitar, thinking of the perfect song to serenade the young woman. But she never came to the window. Again, that was new. His guitar move had never not worked before. He kept singing and singing, not knowing that Maria was sitting just a few feet from the window. He sent gifts and flowers to the house, but Maria refused them all. He would go to her every day, hoping to just catch a glimpse. I wonder what was so alluring about this woman who refused to even look at him. Of course, that was exactly what was so alluring about her. Not seeing through this very basic trick, the ranchero stood outside her house in the rain, begging for just a glimpse of her. He would do anything. He would even marry her if it meant that they could be together. Maria smiled and came to the window. The pair was happy for the first few years. They had two children together, and Maria was finally free from the anxiety of crushing poverty. Then, the same desire that had led the ranchero to the town, and yes, the same inclination that led to him falling for Maria's trick and marrying her, the need to always be moving, always be conquering and exploring, came back. He left one day, and didn't return in time for dinner. He didn't return for months of dinners, and when he did, it was on a different horse. He looked Maria in the eyes. The other horse had grown too tame. It was time to get rid of it. He smiled when he saw his children, and the rest of the night, he only had words for them, not Maria. This continued for months. The ranchero returned home whenever he needed to repair or replace something. Eventually, the other townspeople started to talk and cast glances. Maria knew what they must be talking about. He was going to leave her. She tried to put it out of her mind, but as more weeks passed with her husband gone, her fear only grew until the day by the river. She was out with her children, both young and innocent. They were down by the river, splashing on the bank when a carriage approached. A well-to-do woman looked down at the kids, and then, from the other side, a smiling face popped over the roof. It was her husband. He called hello to his children and told them that he would pick them up when he returned home later that day. He didn't even look at Maria. The ranchero gave the order, and the driver sped on. The two children laughed and danced. They were going to get to ride in a carriage. They had never been in one before. They were so excited. Wasn't their mother excited too? They would all ride off together as a family. But Maria was weeping. She knew exactly what this meant. The children asked what was wrong. Wasn't, wasn't she excited about their father? He was back. They kept pulling and poking and asking about their father and why the mom was crying and why she didn't like their father. He was so much fun. Unlike her, he never told them that they couldn't do fun things. He always came home with gifts. She was probably the reason why he was always gone. Why was she crying? The mother clenched her fists and teeth and screamed at them to leave her alone. She pushed them back, hard. She heard one splash into the water, then the other. She sat there and sobbed. She was losing her home, her husband, and he would take the kids. He didn't care about them. He didn't know anything about them. She took a deep breath and calmed herself. It was bad, but she was honestly expecting something like this. She would move on. She still had her children, and she would make a life for herself and for them. She wouldn't give him the kids. She was stronger than that. She wiped her eyes and nose and stood up. 
turning to apologize to her children. But they weren't there. She spun around. They weren't on the road, weren't in the hills. Then a chill. The water. She remembered the splash when she shoved them. No, they couldn't swim. She looked into the water. Nothing. Her eyes started downriver, and she saw her children struggling in the water, crying. Their screams only muffled by the river water filling their lungs. They gave her one final look of confused panic before their heads dipped under, and they rounded the bend in the stream. Maria was already running after them, telling herself that this wasn't possible. She hadn't meant to push them in the river. She thought they just fell on the bank. Five minutes ago, they had been walking together happily as a family. They were all that she had left now. She skidded around the bend in the road to see nothing. The river turned into a little waterfall that dropped onto rocks and rapids. Maria dropped to her knees and broke down. They were gone. Maria spent the entire night weeping, calling out to her children by the river. The next day, her own body was found, laid out on the smooth rocks by the river. The town mourned the tragedy. It was that night, though, that everyone thought they heard something on the wind. At first, it was hard to tell, but then came a voice, weeping and calling for her children in the night. Reports began to surface of a woman, clad in white, the same color Maria had been buried in, roaming the riverside and searching for her lost children. That was one thing, but after that came the disappearances. It wasn't common, but every now and then, the children playing down by the river at night would simply vanish. I'm not sure there are any actual recorded instances of this, but it's part of La Llorona's story. The legend goes that when Maria arrived at the gates of heaven, she was turned away unless her children were with her, so she travels through the night, looking for her children and if any come her way that could help her dupe St. Peter into letting her into heaven, she decides to try her hand at that. There's an alternate version, where the woman is La Malinche, the Aztec interpreter and slave given to Cortez, the conquistador, who later became the mother of two of his children in the late 1500s. When the crown wanted Cortez to return to Spain, they sent a beautiful Spanish noblewoman to persuade him. He agreed and planned to take his children with him. Malinche, however realized that Cortez didn't actually care about her and lamented just how thoroughly she had betrayed her people by helping Cortez. And so she dragged the babies to the lake by modern-day Mexico City and stabbed them. The conquistadors found and murdered Malinche, and there her spirit remained, wandering the streets of Mexico City and spreading her anguish to all who heard her cry. La Llorona is an extremely widespread legend. In fact, we get a request for the story at least once a month. When people ask me to tell Mexican folklore, it almost always includes a mention of La Llorona. She's a boogeyman, or boogeywoman, who keeps children away from the river at night. But there's also a subset of the stories that are different. In those, La Llorona shows up at times when families are at odds with each other. And she scares people, oftentimes not children, but rather teens and young adults, back to their parents. And that way she's not a monster, but a sad, broken woman, trying to get people to return home and repair their relationships with their loved ones. In the way that she can't, while they still have a chance. That's it for this time. 
The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to more music in the show notes. Today's episode was brought to you by Amazon Prime Exclusive Lore. The scariest stories are true. Amazon Prime Exclusive Lore is a chilling six-episode anthology series from an executive producer of The Walking Dead. Each uniquely creepy episode takes a myth that's rooted in historical folklore and twists it, exposing timeless terrors that still haunt us today. Real life can scare you to death. Watch exclusively on Amazon Prime Video, Lore, now on Amazon Video. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Chris Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.